0: Good evening. It is great to be here on a Sunday night. This is the first time that I've been speaking in Harvest this year. So I'm feeling quite full, have a lot of words this evening, and I'm super excited about where I've been camping out this week with God, and the scriptures that I have been contemplating and just sitting in as God's been massaging, here it comes. my heart with some of the concepts that he wants to grow me in, and I have no doubt he wants me to share with you tonight. So if you have your Bibles with you, we are going to be camping out in Galatians chapter 5. It's a familiar passage if you've been in church for any amount of time, and it is entitled Life by the Spirit. Now, when Paul wrote this chapter, he obviously didn't put that title in there. That came by the translators, but I've left it in the notes tonight because it really does sum up exactly what I'm speaking about tonight. What does life look like when we live it by the Spirit? And the title of tonight's message is The Mirror of Comparison and The Mirror of Transformation. And I'm going to build a case tonight that the only way we can transform into what God wants us to be, the only way we can transform, have the metamorphosis from the caterpillar to the butterfly, is in the mirror of transformation that comes from a life by the Spirit, So, if you've got Galatians chapter 5 open now, we're going to start in verse 13. And it says this You, my brothers and my sisters, were called to be free. Imagine living in freedom every single day, not bound to any of our personality traits or the trauma of your childhood. Imagine living free every single day in the life of the Spirit. And then Paul warns, but, does not, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. I love this play here, as if we indulge our flesh, we will not be able to serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. There is a human capacity to bite and devour each other and to destroy one another. So I say, Paul suggests, walk by the Spirit, because then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another. What your flesh wants, that natural part of you, is in conflict to what it means to live by the Spirit. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In other words, you will be free from the rules and the restrictions that the law brings. The acts of the flesh, just in case you wondered tonight what the acts of the flesh looks like, Paul gives us a great description. This is his description, not mine. They're obvious, he says, sexual immorality. Impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred is from the flesh. Discord. Any of you involved in discord in this room this evening? Jealousy. Any of you felt jealous tonight once during worship, perhaps? Fits of rage. Anybody had a fit of rage this last week? Selfish ambition dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, it's on the list, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here comes the freedom. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ, here is the beautiful news, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. Those things, those desires of our flesh, the primal desires have been crucified to the cross, with Christ, which is why a life by the Spirit is actually an option for us. I've added some extra in there in case you're trying to follow. Since we live by the, by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The word keep in step there has two connotations. The one is the military precision of walking in step. Have you seen cadets march together in perfect, absolute unison? Not like that debacle you guys all saw on YouTube a while ago. The other connotation is this beautiful picture of the synergy, the synchrony of a dance together. That's what keeping in step with the Spirit looks like. So let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. So I've chosen the title this evening, The Mirror of Comparison Versus the Mirror of Transformation. And I've taken it from an old story Any of you raised on fairy tales as children? This one is from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. It was first written in 1917 and then rewritten in 1937. And if you're not familiar with the story, I'm gonna give you a brief synopsis of it. The loudest part of the story is, of course, the danger of comparison and what that brings. So Snow White is raised in a household with an evil stepmother, and she has a magic mirror. And she asks the mirror every day, mirror, mirror, on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And every single day, the mirror replies with this beautifully favorable response that matches her need to be desired by others and says, you are the fairest in all the land until one terrible day. The mirror replies with an unfavorable response, and little Snow White, this beautiful girl who's growing up in a household, has now become the fairest in the land. And the evil queen goes into a terrible rage, and she orders the huntsman to kill Snow White which of course he cannot do, so he pretends that he's done it, and he returns to the palace. And the queen is stoked. Her life is sorted, until one day she goes to the mirror again, and she says, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And she finds out that Snow White is living with these adorable seven little dwarfs. She's traded her, her, her food and her keep for looking after the dwarfs and she cooks and cleans after them every day. I'm not sure that that was a fair trade. <laughs> but the queen finds out that she's still alive and she takes an apple and she poisons it and she puts on this exceptional disguise and she goes into the little cottage and Snow White falls for the trick and falls asleep. And the dwarfs don't want to bury Snow White because she's so beautiful, so they hide her in a glass coffin. And that's when our hero of the story comes dashing in, and he sees Snow White in the glass coffin, and he takes her to his palace. And on the way, there's a little bit of jostling, and the coffin falls, and miraculously, or magically, Snow White's little piece of apple gets dislodged from her throat and they live happily ever after, or do they? You see, the problem with living happily ever after is it's very easy to write it in a storybook, but it's a little bit more difficult to do. And so my questions as a counselor are this, how did Snow White and the prince manage the complications of their blended family? (laughs) What happened on the actual day of the wedding when the queen found out that Snow White was there and still alive and fairer than her. Did she steal the moment for Snow White? And what about their incredibly short courtship without premarital counseling? <laughs> Did it later impact their marriage? And I often wonder what happened to the relationship that she had with her father. Did he ever believe her that her stepmother tried to kill her? And was there a family cutoff as a result of what happened? And the big question, of course, is did she ever deal with her childhood trauma of her rejection? You see, the complications of an ever after, a happily ever after life are a little bit more difficult. The complications of living a free life, a life of love, of joy, of peace, of forbearance, of kindness, of goodness, of gentleness and self-control that Paul talks about are a whole lot easier in a fairy tale. But when we wake up on Monday morning with the sod next to us in our bed, and that's not a personal story, (laughs) how much more difficult is it to live the happily ever after life? Now fortunately for Snow White, There was a whole body of research available to her called The Science of Love that she could have gone down, sought counseling, had a good experience with it, or read a few good books that would have helped her with her relationship. Or, of course, she could have turned to the Bible passages, Galatians chapter five, and followed the principles. And if you're like Snow White tonight, and you're sitting here and you're wondering This is a little bit more difficult than living happily ever after there really are three choices available to us tonight the first one is to reject the principles of the science of love and of the bible of what living a good relational life looks like the second one of course is to accept the principles and begin what I would refer to as a good behavior modification program. You can put it on, you can work hard, you can go after gentleness and tell yourself, I will be gentle, I will be peaceful, I will not be angry today, and you will have some very good results. Or you can do the third thing, and this is what I'm gonna go after tonight. Embracing the principles of the science of love and definitely the biblical principles, and experience and simultaneously experience long-lasting, continual growth-oriented change that results from the transformation of who we are, inside and outside. And the question I continuously ask myself and debate is, how does this happen? How do we change? from the caterpillar into the butterfly. You see, we know the comparison doesn't work. And the Snow White story is perhaps a silly example, but if you need some biblical examples, I've got a number of them. Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Leah and Rachel, Saul and David, the older brother and the prodigal son, the Pharisees. You can do your own study on comparison if you struggle with this particular issue, and you will find countless examples of how comparison does not work. 2 Corinthians 10.12, Galatians 6, Philippians 2.3, Mark 7.2, 2 Corinthians 4.7 says we need to examine ourselves, and in no point does Scripture ever point to us comparing with someone else as a methodology for growth. You will not find a single example of it. So right now, as you sit here, if you compare yourself to anyone else and you look at anyone else in your life and you say, my growth is better than theirs, or what I'm doing is better than theirs, I'm telling you now, you are stuck in the mirror of comparison and that will not bring the breakthrough of transformation. Instead, the goal here is to sit in what I would refer to as a mirror of transformation. Now let me explain to you the, the way the mirror works just in case you're not familiar with it. What does the mirror reflect? What's around it, its surroundings. Whatever you put in, a, in front of a mirror, that is what the mirror is going to reflect. And that's how transformational change occurs. When we sit in front of the mirror of the Holy Spirit, living a life with the Spirit, that is the only way that the deep transformational metamorphosis from caterpillar to butterfly can occur and we can watch podcasts, we can watch YouTube videos, we can do all kinds of stuff, but really it is the time in the presence of God that makes the difference. Now Moses is a great example of this. He went up onto the mountain, and did any of you remember what happened when he came down after spending time with God? So that's a great answer. Well done. One brave boy. So what happened when Moses came down after spending time with Jesus is his face shone so brightly that they had to cover it with a veil because nobody else could look with it, look at it. And that's what happens to us in the presence of God. When we sit in the presence of God, we cannot help but reflect his glory. So there's no behavior modification program or anything else that we can do. The mirror of transformation, the sitting in the the present, the life by the Spirit that Paul talks about is the only way that the metamorphosis actually takes place. So the first point I want to make tonight is the transformation, this metamorphosis, Because it only happens in the presence of God, transformation integrates our spiritual life with our real life or our other life. In other words, there actually is no other life. Many of of us divide our spiritual life, our time in church, our time in worship with our work life or our time here at church, my time preaching, my time speaking with the way I treat Rob. You see, there is, no, there is no compartmentalization, and the only way real transformation starts to happen is when we start to identify that we only have one life, and that is our spiritual life. Because if we compartmentalize those two lives, I can make excuses, I can look at a separate life as a different life from my spiritual life. And transformation only occurs when we start that self-awareness process. Socrates said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And when we start a self-examination process where we start looking at our lives, how do we look at work? How do we look in the car driving home in the traffic with the taxis on a Monday morning going to work? You see, that's not a separate life from your spiritual life. You only have one life. Your relationship with your spouse is your life. That is your spiritual life. And until we start taking Holy Spirit into that life, we cannot actually have a transformation. Now when we start the self-awareness process and we start realizing that our spiritual life and our normal life, our other life, which actually doesn't exist, are not two separate processes, we can actually begin to grow. I believe that this is the starting point, an integration Realizing that there are not two different lives. How am I when I have workers in the house and they spill oil in the driveway, which is what happened yesterday? You see, it's only recognizing what I'm feeling in that moment and integrating it into my spiritual life that my real change starts. If I compartmentalize it, I separate it, and I do not actually begin to transform. I don't wanna spend too much time on emotional awareness because if you were in the message last week, George spoke a little bit on emotions and he did it so well. But I wanna bring a few concepts to your understanding tonight about not separating our spiritual life and our emotional life or our thought life. Henry Cloud, who's a great psychologist and an author, he said this, our feelings, which cannot be separated from our spiritual life, your feelings are a barometer of your soul. In other words, they tell us how we're doing. How are you doing tonight based on some of the feelings that you've had this week? There's a great book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by a guy called Peter Schizero, and he says this, many Christians believe wholeheartedly that many feelings should be avoided. He says that we inflate ourselves with a false confidence to make uncomfortable feelings go away. We quote scripture, we praise scripture, I do this all the time, we memorize scripture, anything to keep ourselves from being overwhelmed by our feelings. And he says that like most christians he was taught that almost all feelings are unreliable and not to be trusted they go up and down and they are the last thing that we should be attending to in our spiritual lives and as george so well explained last week he says it's true that some christians live in the extreme of following their feelings in an unhealthy and an unbiblical way however he said it's more common to encounter christians who do not believe that they have permission to admit their feelings or express them openly. This applies especially to difficult feelings, such as fear, anger, sadness, shame, anger, hurt, and pain. And here's what he says. Yet how can we listen to what God is saying and evaluate what is going on inside when we cut ourselves off? from our emotions. You see, to feel is human. To minimize or deny what we feel is a distortion of what it means to be the image bearers of God. To the degree that we are unable to express our emotions, we remain impaired in our ability to love God, to love others, and to love ourselves well. Why? because our feelings are a component of what it means to be made in the image of God, and to cut them out of our spirituality is to cut off an essential part of our humanity. So, I'm not great with sharing personal examples, so I'm just gonna give you a heads up, but hopefully I'll get through this one. I have a great personal example of this in action, um, I, would love, I love sharing stories of things that happened long ago, but this one was a very recent one. And this is a perfect example of how our feelings, our thought lives, and our life by the Spirit and living in the Spirit come into play in a beautiful synchrony, a beautiful dance of God moving us from a caterpillar into the butterfly. So the other night, um, we had people for dinner, as we often do, and they were asking me about my year. You know, how are you doing? What's happening? I'm telling these stories about how I cleaned out the study and what my goals and my plans are for the year. And I had been talking at this point for probably more than three or four minutes, which is very uncomfortable for me. So because you're on the outside of me, you don't get to see the inside of me. I'm sharing now the inside of me and what happens, which looks very different from the outside that you see. So I'm busy chatting, and after about three minutes, my thought in my head says something like, that's enough now. And I literally hear the voice, shut up, shut up, it's enough. And so I do like I normally do, okay, it's your turn now, I've been talking enough, let's have somebody else talk. And afterwards I go to God and I say, this feeling of inadequacy, this feeling of not being good enough, show me about that, show me something about that. And he takes me to this time in my childhood Where I was in a group of people, with a group of people, of of older people that I respected and wanted to impress. And I remember telling a story, and I was talking probably for longer than three minutes. And one of them began to call me a name. Now remember, our stories of childhood are not intentional. Nobody does this on purpose. Nobody thinks if I do this, I'm going to damage her, and one day she's going to be sitting at a dinner party having these horrible thoughts. It's never intentional. But whether it's intentional or not, this stuff still happens. And we have all this kind of stuff that creates these crazy narratives, these crazy stories in our head, that until we stop compartmentalizing our Christian spiritual life with our emotional life and our thought life, We are not going to have the breakthrough that is necessary in order to have a a healthier narrative, the narrative that God wants us to be having. And so I take this thing to God, and He shows me what it is. And I say to Him, Okay, speak to me, rewire that thing in me. I want to hear your voice not the voice of childhood, and he begins to speak to me and remind me why he gave me a voice and what he's called me to and the prophetic words over my life. And in that moment, there's breakthrough. An incredible transformational breakthrough that literally happens in the moment as we integrate all the different parts of our life into one life. You see how it works. Now, if I was unaware of my feelings of inadequacy, my thoughts of what I'm hearing about shut up, God would never have been able to counsel me. The Holy Spirit would never have been able to come and do the transformational change and create the breakthrough in the moment. There's a lot of stuff I don't have time for because I can feel. The interesting thing, I read this research study a couple of weeks ago, and in the conclusions, I don't have time to go through the research with you, but one of the things that they said in the conclusion is that transformational change is rare. Becoming like Jesus, having the character and the attitudes of Jesus is apparently quite rare. Well, that's really not my experience, not in my own life and not in my mate's lives. You see, this life in the spirit is a very possible option for us. But one of the things it takes is this realization, this honesty, this self-examination of who I am in my relational moments so that God can do the work and heal it. So I want, to ask, I want you to ask yourself this week, Think about this past week that's happened. Think about some of your relational moments. What were you feeling? What were you thinking? And where does God wanna do the healing? And Father, I pray that you would fill this place, that you would fill every thought And that your Holy Spirit would come and minister and counsel. And that we would have a breakthrough moment. Number two. Are you having fun? I'm having a great time. I found my voice. Number two. Transformation requires more than willpower and self-discipline. Now, willpower and self discipline are great things. I am a master of self discipline and willpower. I am very good. I have grown that muscle. But you know what I've realized with a life with the Spirit? My willpower and my self discipline is not enough to live in the freedom that Christ has for me. Now, I'm going to bring some interesting concepts to you tonight. This is from a guy called Harry Frankfurt that made this stuff very understandable about free will. So basically, what makes us different from animals is this thing called our will. Let me explain it to you like this. This is from a Harvard University professor, philosopher. He came up with three concepts. There are more than those, but I've only got time tonight to do three. First-order desires... Second order desires, they should be up on the slides. First order, there he is. First order desires, second order desires, and second order volition. And am I clicking? It's my earring. Oh dear. I told you they were made for guys. Better. Ha. Frankfurt argues that the difference between a person and an animal is that animals have first-order desires, but only human persons can form second-order desires. Stay with me, this is going to get complicated. First-order desires are your basic animal-like instincts. Food, sex, water, sleep, control, and dominance. When last did you try to dominate in an argument? Second order desires are higher level than that. They are the desire for a desire that is different from our first order desire. That's why we went to Harvard. New Testament might call the first order desires the desires of the flesh. Does that make sense? That's the first order desires. It's exactly what Paul spoke about in the Galatians five chapter. The acts of the flesh are obvious sexual immorality impurity debauchery idolatry witchcraft hatred discord jealousy first order desires you see that's the only reason why frankfurt got famous was because he actually tapped in to a biblical principle second order desires would be the ability to want something better than our first order desires the thought would be i know what i want is not good for me but i want to want something better. You with me? So, I might drive home from church tonight and smell the McDonald's fries on the way home. And I want fries. (laughs) But second order desires say, I want to want a healthier choice. Now this is where the third important concept comes in. And this is literally one of my favorite concepts about being human well, other than the Holy Spirit. The the third concept is second-order volition, and that is when our second-order desires translate into action. Second-order desires can translate into action. While second-order desires are wanting something different, second-order volition does something different. So my second-order volition means that I keep driving past McDonald's. It's a choice, and this is what separates us from animals. And all of us have second-order volition available to us. You might not think it's there, but it really is. If I say jump, all of you can choose to jump, right? It's a choice. That's second-order volition. It's choosing an action. Now, all humans have the ability to translate second-order desires into second-order volition. All of us have this capability. It's like a muscle that we can grow and work and get stronger in. But as as wonderful as second-order volition is, guess what happens to a muscle? It gets really tired after a while. That's why at about 10.30 at night, when you're scrolling down Instagram, sometimes your second order volition is tired. There's no more self-discipline left. And if you've chosen to do the fruits of the Spirit as a behavior modification program, your muscle gets tired. And that's why life by the Spirit is an inside out life where the fruit comes from something that is attached to the vine, not something we are trying to do by self-will and strong discipline. You see, there's a free life available to us that does not come from a behavioral modification program. And life in the Spirit is available to every single one of us. It's not just for Moses. It's for us who have entered into this relationship with Christ, and what does it take? Well, it takes sitting in the mirror reflection, and I'm gonna explain more about that later. You see, the bad news is that willpower will never be enough to live in the way of Jesus, especially when we are battling the wounds of childhood trauma. We can try our best, we can know what we know, what we want to do. I want to be kind, I want to respond kindly. But when that button is pushed and the trauma is ignited, or when our volition has run out. You see, I can choose to eat well until about 4.30 in the afternoon, and then you can just give me any bag of flings and I will devour the whole thing or when I'm arguing with Rob, I can start off really well, second-order volition, I'm disciplined, I'm saying the right things, but an hour and a half in, I ain't got no second-order volition left. And that's when the beauty of God, the time that I've spent with God being rooted in the vine is what brings the transformational change in my conversation because I can't separate my relational life from my spiritual life, because it's all one life. And the good news is that this life is a partnership. You see, volition runs out, but we are in a partnership with Jesus Christ. Transformation is a partnership with God. You have a role, and God has a role, and it's not just about self effort. Now here there is a very delicate tension because if you're anything like me and you talk to me about partnership, I will take my role on seriously. I will do all I can in my role to control my part of it and I will lose sight of the actual partnership because I'm working so hard to do it for me. I can discipline. I can do that, but my problem is that I lose sight of the fact that this partnership is not even a 50-50 partnership. God is the one that is doing the heavy lifting. God is the one that is actually doing the transformation. I have a job I keep in step with the Spirit, but God does the changing. I want to show you the best verse I've ever come across in my whole life. And this is where I've been camping out this week. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That sounds familiar, right? From the Galatians chapter 5 chapter. And we all who with unveiled faces, referring to Moses and all the people that had to veil their faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This beautiful Greek word contemplate is where I got the phrase, the mirror of transformation from. It means to stare at something like in a mirror and the the church at Corinth that he was writing this to understood the word contemplate the mirror word because one of the major parts of the trade at the at the at the place was bronze mirrors so as he spoke to the people at Corinth they understood what it meant to stand in front of a mirror so he was using something from their cultural context to explain to them that Whatever they are, whatever they position themselves in front of, that will be mirrored. And I love this part. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. We stare into the mirror of His image. We are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. And here's the best part of the partnership. Where does it come from? Does it come from my self-will or my volition? No, it comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And that's the part of the heavy lifting that God does. Number four, transformation involves breakthrough and process moments. I love the distinction between this. Now, I had a breakthrough moment after that dinner where I sat with the Lord, and He began to counsel me and work through that moment. And transformation is amazing. The breakthrough transformation is amazing. It's why we'll ask you to come forward and pray after a service. But transformation also happens in what we call the process moments. You see, I've got to take that breakthrough moment and I've got to now work it out every day in my everyday. I've got to start rewiring my brain and when I hear that voice, I've got to say, no, no, that's not God's voice. That's not what's been spoken over me. And process moments are what I refer to as the hard slog. Breakthrough moments are amazing, they're very glamorous, and they happen in a moment, and they're fun, and we go after those transformation breakthrough moments. But the slug moments, the process moments, the working out moments, I think, build character. The in the moment where we wanna shout and scream at whoever's in front of us, or act like a whatever, in the moment, the process moments go, I can do this differently. This can look different in my life. They are the character building moments. It's the choice when we reach at our phone to our phone in the morning when we wake up to choose the Bible app and not the Instagram. It's the slow death to self. It's the choice to pray when we don't really feel like it. It's the choice to give generously to build our faith. It's what Nietzsche calls, and yes, I know that he was an atheist, but Eugene Peterson used this phrase and wrote a whole book about it. It's what he calls a long obedience in the same direction. Breakthrough moments are beautiful, We hear people talk about their breakthrough moments all the time. Process moments, although they don't feel beautiful, are just as beautiful. It's the keeping in step with the Spirit. It's the sitting in His daily presence. It's the continual daily, daily, all the time integration of all of our life with our spiritual life. And there's fruit from this: love, joy, peace, patience, not as a behavior modification program, but something that just oozes out of us naturally. What from? Which moment? Which Monday morning, when we chose to sit in God's presence in praise and worship, when we chose to read the word instead of doing something else like watching series? Which moments causes? the patience and the peace and the joy to flow out of us. It is all of the moments. The breakthrough ones, the process ones, it's a combination of things. And so I know I'm definitely out of time, but I want to take a moment for us to pray because we need some breakthrough moments and we need to make a commitment to engage in process moments because there is a life that we can live by the Spirit, where we take our spiritual life into our everyday life. We take it to work, we take it on the car, we take it to renovators, we take it to our conversations with our spouses, with our parents, with our children, with our teachers, with our work associates. This life in the Spirit is a free, free, beautiful life that brings the fruit of the Spirit in an easy manner. Stand with me and let's pray. Father, I have no doubt that you want to do a work tonight. I have no doubt that you want to set some people free of some moments and Father, I have no doubt tonight that we need to repent. Just as we were doing in worship earlier, I just I felt, I thought these words, repent, 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 just in my own life. And I took a moment to just repent of some things that needed to happen. And I just want to encourage each of you to just think of some things where you have separated your spiritual life from your relational life, your spiritual life from your work life, your spiritual life from your social media life, your spiritual life from your medical life, your depression, your anxiety. And Father, I pray for an integration of that tonight. And Father, we just take a moment to repent of what we need to take care of. Father, I pray that you would come, that you would move, and that you would have your way. And Father, I pray for the moments of trauma and childhood that are represented here tonight. Small moments, unintentional moments that have become big moments. And Father, I pray for breakthrough moments and healing in that space. And Father, now we just thank you for the partnership. We thank you that you do the transformational work and we surrender ourselves to you. We surrender ourselves to your transformation. And now in the process moments, I just want you to think of one thing that you can do differently this week. Just one, one choice that you can make to position yourself in God's presence some time that you could take from something else and place it at God's feet and just commit that to Him, to do one thing differently this week. Because growth and transformational change is not a race. There's no race to get to the destination. It's not a comparison. We don't compare our growth or someone else's growth with our own. It's an individual process where we say, God, Just work with me. I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm not going to work on somebody else's life. Just work on our own lives. And so just think of something that you can do to work out the process of transformation and just commit that to God tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do all of our heavy lifting. And Lord, I thank you for the testimonies that are going to come from the breakthrough moments that you're going to have this week with us. Lord, I thank you that we are going to begin to change from the caterpillars to the butterflies. And Father, I thank you for the life that is available to us, a free life lived by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you folks, that's all from me.